0: Please stick around and let me bend your ear for a few minutes. You just might feel a little better on the other side. Hello there, this is Dee and welcome to episode 88 of the Benzo Free Podcast. I'm still at home, Um, heading back to KC, first week of September, I think I mentioned in our last episode, but still catching up on things around here like the website and and getting this um, interview recorded and out. Still have kind of a wave going on here, and I I don't want to be negative, but I still have some recurring symptoms. I wish I didn't, but they're actually kind of a comfort to me, and I think I mentioned this before, but I have benzo belly and distention and it was such a surprise because I I was gaining weight and I was feeling bloated and I was trying to figure out what was causing and I couldn't figure it out. And it's funny how you forget these things when you haven't had a symptom for a while. And then it hit me that wait a minute, this is benzobelly, This is distension. You know, this is not all just weight gain. It's a reaction to the food I'm eating. And that helped because now I understand a better what I'm going through. And honestly, it's benzo withdrawal. I've been here, done this, and I can get through this okay. Good news is I know how to, like I said, I know how to manage it. And I know this is a wave and it's going to pass. And I don't have these waves very often. As I mentioned before, I've been under a lot of stress this year. And I also let myself go. I wasn't taking good care of my physical health and that combination triggered a wave or two to hit me. And that's okay. I mean, that's normal. It's, it's, I think it's kind of good sometimes because it's a reminder to say, D, wake up. You got to take care of yourself, and you're not doing that. And this has helped me to step back. In fact, I've I've been putting off so many things on my own personal health, and I started to, I made a you know, been, went back to my skin checks with my dermatologist and everything's okay there right now. And I finally made my first dentist appointment at probably almost three years. Thankfully, I did okay with that one too. And I made a eye appointment find found out how bad my vision is and why I'm not seeing the screen here very well. So I got to take my glasses in and get new lenses here pretty soon. But I also got that checked out and I need to make a doctor's appointment. I haven't been following up with her much lately. So all these things I'm trying to do and also my diet, my diet was really bad and I need to get back onto a, a more simple diet, especially while I'm having some benzo belly symptoms. Just back when I was in acute withdrawal, I, was, I would often eat just chicken and white rice because it was the only thing that didn't set me off and, and thankfully I know what to do. So I'm going to just back up a little bit, take better care of myself and realize this will pass, which it always does. But I figure every now and then, you know, <laughs> those GABA receptors are going to freak out a little bit and say, hey, we still have a little bit more healing to do, just hang in there. And that's the way I see it. And I'm, I'm okay with that. It doesn't have to be discouraging. It doesn't have to be creating any sense of hopelessness, because it's not. I have not had any serious symptoms, any serious waves in a year or two. So the fact that I'm having a little bit now, I think is just the final, you know, the final gasps of <laughs> benzo withdrawal hanging on <laughs> before it fully lets go and, and lets me get back to the normal life. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. It's, it's all good. I had a chance to get up to the mountains again. As many of you know, I think I mentioned before, I was up in Vail a little bit ago for my my, my friend's wedding. And then last weekend, we went up to Estes Park. Um, Estes Park is, for those who don't know, here in Colorado, it's the entrance to Rocky Mountain National Park. So it is just this gorgeous, um, town. My wife still, um, does some work for our former HOA up there. And so we had to go up to do some work. And so we stayed at a friend's condo and had a, had a nice weekend. Um, I, I forgot how beautiful that area was. We lived there for seven years and it was pretty amazing living in Estes Park, living up in the mountains with that kind of view and just getting out into nature my wife and i probably took two or three walks and hikes you know each day we were up there and just enjoyed and and the the town you know it's a quaint little resort town there at the base of rocky mountain of rocky Though we just call it rocky <laughs> rocky mountain national park and and just the town around there seeing what's changed we were for those who have ever seen we, we used to live right on the property of the stanley hotel And for those who have been there, they know what that is. For those who haven't, the Stanley Hotel was the inspiration for the book and movie The Shining. Um, It wasn't where it was filmed, but it's where Stephen King stayed and where he was inspired to write the book. So um, that's where it all came from. And they, of course, um, have publicized that and everything since then. But it was a gorgeous place to live. And and it was nice to get back out and um, just walk into nature and and the nice thing too was the f- smoke wasn't as heavy up there as it has been down here on the front range for so long we've we've probably only had three or four days where we've seen the mountains here north of denver in the past month and a half due to the smoke from the the pacific fires so it's been pretty pretty bad around here and i'm sure the rest i know the rest of the country you're also dealing with that in other parts of um of, of the world. I know there's a lot of fires that were going over Siberia and other parts of Europe. So I know we're just not the only ones dealing with that here. But anyway, um, as I ramble, which I do, <laughs> as you all know, <laughs> I just wanted to mention that it was nice to get away and that getting up to, uh, you know, getting to Vail with my buddy for the wedding was great, but there was a lot to do and it was fun but we were always doing things because there was a lot of things for the, for the wedding to get done. In Estes Park, my wife had the meeting, um, to go to, which was their, the homeowners meeting that she had to attend. But outside of that, we had our own schedule and it was just nice for the two of us to get up, have a decent place to stay, get out and go for walks and, you know, just catch up on things. And, and I I really enjoyed that. So, so anyway, I just wanted to let you know that while I am still suffering from some symptoms, I'm still out there living my life, and I want to go out there and enjoy things and do things as we can, and and make the most of it. And and you know, also I wanted to mention too something else on this, which is, I've been seeing some really good information and events and. All kinds of things, communications coming from my, my, my two favorite organizations in the benzo community, which are the Alliance for Benzodiazepine Best Practices, I just call them the Alliance, and Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, also called BIC. And so I, I kind of wanted to, to talk about that real briefly. There's been a lot going on with both these organizations at the at the Alliance, which you can find at benzoreform.org. That's their website. Um, and you might hear some clicking, because I'm actually clicking to their websites as I talk about this. But one thing that um, the Alliance has coming out recently was their um, doc talks. And this has been really interesting. Unfortunately, I was going to publish um promote this on our podcast, but, Um, their last event was the one that they had most recently was on August 17th. And unfortunately I am now recording this intro on August 18th. I'm a little behind, so I apologize to them for not getting this out earlier on a podcast, but I am sure that they'll probably have more events with this. I really hope they do. So please check out their website and learn more about that. Um, but this doc talks program are, are, are really good programs. And I think it's a it's an a, it's ability for you to have direct contact and get help. They're basically virtual events where patients have the opportunity to talk to benzodiazepine expert medical professionals. And after a 15-minute lecture on key benzodiazepine topics, the experts are there to field your questions about your experiences. Now, the first event of this was on June 22nd. They have another one on August 17th. Hopefully, they'll have more coming out. So please, Go to their website, BenzoReform.org, <laughs> back up, slow down. Okay, I have to remind myself sometimes when I'm doing this. Please go to their website at BenzoReform.org and learn more about this. It's a great program. There's. They also mentioned that um, in June, July, the Alliance also participated in an FDA for- forum, and it was a workshop featuring dozens of presenters and panelists. And... A lot was done there and and talked about. Dr. Stephen Wright, who's a a friend of mine, and I've had him on the show before, um, was presented as a panelist. Several key people from the FDA and NIDA attended. And it was just an excellent workshop to provide information about benzodiazepines from many perspectives. So a lot is being done, and that's why I'm mentioning these things. If we pop over to BIC, there's a lot more on the Alliance. Please go check them out on their website. Again, benzoreform.org. If we jump over to BIC, um, Benzodiazepine Information Coalition, they have so much going on, too. And their newsletter, I've been really amazed with lately. They've really upped their game on their newsletter, are providing so much good information. If you haven't gone to visit them, and they're, of course, at benzoinfo.com, if you haven't gone to visit them, please do so and sign up for their newsletter. A lot of really good information coming out there and so much their media outreach, their just the work they're doing within the medical community and within the patient community has been amazing. And I'm really proud to say that um, I get an opportunity to work with them many times. And I'm, I'm friends with many of the people on their board and people that work there. And it's just, it's an outstanding organization. Both the Alliance and BIC are just doing so much. In fact, there was this article not too long ago from Dr. Christy Huff on 10 tips to find medical help with Ben's advice. (laughs) Oh, I I get into these things and I get excited. And I think for a lot of you, many of you have mentioned that you enjoyed my voice because it's that lower baritone voice. And when I'm calm and relaxed, it comes out. (laughs) But when I get excited about things, I start talking faster and it raises. And I've mentioned this before. Oh, but I do try to back up and slow down and say things a little slower. Anyway, the article I'm talking about is called 10 Tips to Find Medical Help with Benzodiazepine Cessation from Dr. Christy Huff. So that's one you can check out. And they have so much good information on their site. Um, They're sharing benzo stories. Um, They just had their fifth anniversary. So they are really going strong here. And I just want, want you to pay more attention to some of the other organizations out there. Uh... We all need help. We all need to go seek information. And these two organizations, the Alliance and BIC, of course, are two, in my opinion, two of the best out there. Oh, let's see. Okay. So back over to my script. That was off script a little bit, just looking around on website things. (laughs) But um, I think that's it. Let me just wrap up my intro here and say a couple admin things and we'll get on with our conversation with Dr. Bradley. Today, our format will include our introduction, which you just heard, and of course the feature, which is the conversation with Dr. Bradley. And before we move on, don't forget, I still would love to hear from you, comment on our videos on YouTube, podcast posts, or our feedback form at easinganxiety.com slash feedback. And while you're there, perhaps you might want to subscribe to our mailing list or even donate to support the work we do. It really helps. And, and remember The Benzo-Free Podcast is for informational purposes only and should never be considered medical advice. Our feature today is part two of a conversation with Dr. Colin Bradley. If you haven't listened to part one yet, you might want to check that one out first. It's in episode 87, and it can be found on our website at easinganxiety.com or on our YouTube site or podcast carriers. I also share Dr. Bradley's bio in the introduction of that episode. And I won't be resharing it here, so if you want to hear his full bio, please go check out that episode. And, and please check out our show notes for our chapter section. If you want to go to a specific topic within this conversation, you can actually see that in our chapter section of our show notes. And I think that's it. Let's join part two of the conversation with Dr. Colin Bradley. Okay, we're back. This is part two of our conversation with um, Dr. Colin Bradley, and I wanted to just pick up kind of where we left off. We mentioned a little bit about the street use um, within Cork and within Ireland and how that's going. I want to move a little bit now into more of the iatrogenic, more of the prescribed, taken as prescribed, um, harmed area, because that's really most of our listeners are more in that area. People have been taking the drug as prescribed regular doses for some period of time. I was on um, clonazepam for 12 years, and taken as prescribed, and it took me 18 months to come off, seven years off, and still have some symptomatology from that experience. And this is the case with a lot of people who are listening to this. One of the things I think we have trouble getting across to the medical establishment is understanding the actual severity and length of withdrawal for some individuals. Can you speak a little bit to that area
1: yes i i and again it's something i must confess it took me a little while to appreciate myself uh, even though i sort of as you say, uh, alerted to the problem very early on in my career. <laughs> uh i just say our, our and some of this to do with our education i'd have to say is that you know we're, we're told that these are drugs are only for short-term use they have a potential for right. create dependence and so what the as i say that the the detail beyond that is, is not definitely uh, discussed or, or or highlighted in our education and as you say we're told that you know when people are uh, well two things were kind of messages were given one is that they should only be used for short-term use but what's not dealt with is well someone let's say it gets a, a been because of some crisis situation that they faced and they get them for a few weeks maybe a month mm-hmm. or two and then the next thing uh, they come back and say well I'm, I'm a little bit better now but if i miss my uh, days or um and um, alopreslam Al- Al- or whatever i i don't feel well. So can I just have a few more? And before you know it, then it becomes a regular prescription. And i right. was saying we have this system here where people can get repeat prescriptions without being seen or reviewed. And quite quickly, it can slip into regular three monthly or six monthly prescribing. And before you know it, then, as I said, it been taking it for years, then something may happen, uh, either a physician may identify that this is something that should be tackled. or uh someone may say to the person or they may read something whatever and they say look i'd like to come off these and then uh we get into the situation where we've not really had very much education as to how that process works as you say there are things like the the ashton manual and so on but uh in the generality of medical education it's not really addressed in fact the whole thing about de-prescribing as a whole concept is relatively new and the fact that people can sometimes need help to come off drugs and not just these drugs but lots of different drugs uh, particularly any drugs that work on, on mental health and you know, getting people off their drugs safely and without uh, mishap, as I say, is, is a bit more challenging than the medical text or medical education, I have you believe. Yeah. So, so yeah, as I say, I, I think uh, that that is a common uh, situation. Uh, again, it, like all these things, there's a lot of variability. So there have mm-hmm. been studies done, for example, and I've seen where people have been written to, for example, by their, their family doctor said, look, you've been on the, uh, this drug for a number of years. Right. We think you should try and come off it. And they suggest a sort of a, a, a relatively straightforward weaning process. And the person goes through that weaning process and they're often no, no problem. Right. But as you say, there are a lot of other people whereby that, that it isn't as simple as that. And right. the whole weaning or withdrawal process is a lot more complicated. Uh, and first of all, the, the pacing of it has to be very individualized. And one of the other things I learned, again, uh, and not when I first started doing this, but this thing of, of you know, when people are, are weaning off and um, they, they sometimes have to stop at a certain point, stay on a certain dose. And the trick there right. then is really to, to encourage them to say, look, I know you feel you want to go back up in dosage, but that's not where we want to end up. We want yeah. you to get to a point where you're free of this medication, you want it out of your life. So let's put up with a certain degree of pain and discomfort but keep it the same dose. Now, we're not going to keep pressing down on the dose because that's going to cause you even more distress and discomfort. We'll have to live with a certain amount of distress and discom- uh, discomfort. We'll get you exactly. through a period, yeah. which can be quite extensive, as you say, it can be months mm-hmm. uh, on, a, on a, a, a sort of fixed dose, lower than their initial dose. And then you can kind of, when things sort of um, stabilize, so to speak. Uh, and it's, it's interesting because I was saying earlier that sometimes it can be to do with, what else is going on in their life? You know, so if they're under a lot of stress, there's a lot of uh, stuff they're having to put up with, then, you know, that's not a good time to be doing a wean fight the time to sit. Exactly.
0: I'm really glad you said that because that kind of hits on, and we'll talk more on this, but it's, this hits on what I went through because I went to a physician who actually didn't believe I should come off of. I mean, the doctor who prescribed me believed that I should stay on it. He had no problem. I we went back to a previous physician who I was more comfortable with. And he actually said, well, I don't believe you have to come off it, but it looks like you've done your research and I'll be happy to work with you. But he made me wait for six months. And I talk about that often on the podcast. It was the best thing anybody ever did to me. I was not mentally stable. I was very, a a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear and trepidation about the process. I had unfortunately gone online and read the horror stories of what people had been through. And so he knew I needed to stabilize for six months before attempting the taper. I do think that was one of the best decisions that was made. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I think that's, I'm glad that you brought that up too, that, you know, sometimes it's not the right time. Sometimes there's too many stressors in your life and you need to, you know, to adapt and change. Or if you're okay and you're not having a lot of tolerance withdrawal at this time, then maybe it's okay to wait a little bit until there's a better time.
1: Exactly. Yeah, and I, I, again, I think that's a big factor, and to say working with people, and and uh, absolutely, I'd say that you know, and uh, it's great to see because then you sort of said, well, you, "You tell me when you're ready to take exactly. the steps," and yeah. and but look out for opportunities as well. So you know, there, there'll be some time. Like for example, if there's something going on in your life that's kind of stressing you, that that may change. Things do change. Mm-hmm. Uh, an interesting example some years ago as well. I was talking as well. Is that? I had a woman like that who I uh, was helping to withdraw, and she was stuck. I feel like, and that's the thing that happened. We get stuck at a certain yeah. dosage. That will be the physician perspective. You know, We wanted to cut down, but they're saying, right. no, no, 8 milligrams. I can't manage it any less than that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but then one time she said, okay, I'll, I'll have another go. You can start going down again. And I asked her what had changed, and, and she said, I got a cat. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> I like that. I like that.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's 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 you know just to know what's going to change. But she said, "Look, I, I've got a cat. I, I feel more comfortable in my life in sure. general. I feel things are going well for me." Uh, but that was one of the, the indicators, shall we say? And so off we went. Um, so uh, two things that I've learned, uh, I say very much mm-hmm. that a lot of my colleagues don't necessarily appreciate. One is this thing of having to stick at a certain dose and stabilize things for a while. Right. And the second thing then is uh, this is again every patient, but these are the ones that are sort of challenging. Is the, the last few steps can again, be very tricky. Yeah. And yeah. um, And that's where I, I, I do go along with the thing that's in the Ashton manual to, to convert people to diazepam. Yes. So no matter what they're on, the diazepam is the easiest one to finish the withdrawal right. on, so to speak. Now it's again, very patient specific as to when you make that step to diazepam, you don't want to put everybody on straight away because that doesn't suit everybody, especially if they're coming off some of the, some of the more short acting ones like Bazelan, it can be very difficult mm-hmm. to go from that to diazepam, is long acting, uh, if you do the conversion, you can, and you know, what you said the, right. the conversion dosages, but again, that's not really straightforward. You may need to get them to down to a certain dose on their existing drug and then do the conversion. So,
0: well, and another benefit, another benefit of the substitution, as you mm-hmm. said, is also some of the other medications like clonazepam and the other ones, it is very difficult to taper down unless you do a micro taper or a scale. You, exactly. you, I mean, the lowest medic, the lowest, I think, for clonazepam is 0.5, which is equal to, you know, uh, five, 10 milligrams of diazepam. So it's still a significant issue. So I do think that's another benefit of the substitution.
1: Yeah, yeah I like your word actually. I hadn't come across that word, but I was sort of offended with the concept of a micro taper <laughs> because I do think that that's uh, the thing. Uh, and that's why one of the things that, again, and working with the pharmacy colleague, came across this thing of, of the, um, the diazepam solution. Right. Because then you can really make very fine uh, adjustments in really small steps.
0: I apologize for everybody at home. We had a slight technical glitch there and I think we got our guest back. Colin, thanks for coming back. Um, what, what else have you learned through, have you had direct patients that have had this issue or is your your is experience more through research?
1: No, it, um, more through direct patients. Uh, okay. Enough. I mean, it's, it's quite a difficult area to research actually. So the research that I've done has been from two angles. One of which is looking just at the prescribing and dispensing data. Which gives us a sense of you know how much benzodiazepines are being prescribed and how long they're being prescribed for, and so on. And and I was saying that a recent research shows that that hasn't changed a whole lot despite okay. quite a lot of attention onto this problem over the last 20 years. Uh, and then the other research that I've done primarily is with doctors and how they are um, seeing the problem or not, as the case may be. And I suppose a little bit around, as I say, this aspect of uh, discomfort and and how they can Deal with that discomfort, as it were.
0: What, what do you see as the most common complaints from the patients who have been going through a, a protracted withdrawal or any type of withdrawal?
1: Yeah, I think the commonest symptoms you see, and uh, this is where it is particularly problematic, that they're pretty similar to and sometimes even identical to the original symptoms they had, the vengeance being prescribed. So, you know, there's this, say, um, sense of anxiety. Uh, jitteriness uh, difficulty sleeping th- those sorts of symptoms which which as i say are, are the kind of things that might have led to the they're being prescribed in the first place okay so quick overlap between withdrawal symptoms and, and symptoms of the underlying anxiety and i suppose that raises another issue which of course is, is it, uh, successful withdrawal does depend on, on helping the patient find uh, alternative strategies for dealing with the anxiety
0: Exactly. That's one thing we always talk about a lot on the podcast is trying to find ways of managing anxiety. It's a perfect time to develop new anxiety tools because Absolutely. they can really benefit your, the severity of your symptoms during this time. But it's, yeah. also, it's also very hard for them to do that because some of them are, are in a very you know, difficult state. As you know, the suicidality during benzo withdrawal and benzo dependence can be very high. I think that's the best way to try to explain to people how severe this can be that yes. some people have taken their own lives because of the severity of it. People have lost jobs. People have lost relationships. I lost my career. Um, so many of us have been through so many things because we can't do the things we used to do. It is an overwhelming um, illness for a time that thankfully it is temporary in almost all cases, but it can be protracted and it can last uh, months or years, as you know.
1: Absolutely. yeah. And, and th- th- as I say, yeah, one of the things that I definitely talk to patients a lot about is, is you say, this is, this is a, a piece of work, it's, a, it's not going to be easy, it's something we will have to spend some time and some effort on. Uh, right. and there will be some discomfort along the way. And you're right, I think the, the, one of the key things is, is to give them a sort of a goal uh, and, and mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to visualize themselves in a, in a life where they're free of the, the medicine cool. and say ideally free from anxiety. And, and of course, not completely free, that's unrealistic. It's kind of free to a point where your anxiety is at a manageable level And you're not needing to take a medicine every day. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, And many people I know I've seen have actually come out of it with less anxiety, I believe primarily because they have learned new tools to manage it that they didn't have going in. Uh, Another factor that Ashton mentions, and I'd like to bring this up to you, one thing that I've seen repeatedly is the learning deficit. I don't know if you are familiar with what she mentioned here, but she says that one of the issues is while we're on benzodiazepines, of course, those drugs are managing our anxiety for us to some degree. Thus, we have not had to learn those tools for a period of time. When we come off of them, that deficit has been shown. So, in addition to neurological changes with the GABA receptors and everything else, she also believed, and I've, I feel like I've seen this in my work too, that there's also this learning deficit. We have not had to either maintain or develop anxiety tools while we were on the medication.
1: Yes, absolutely. And again, it's very important uh, to say- or when on the medication is to realize what the medication is for, what it's doing, because it's just, it, it's, it's one of its effects is to suppress your awareness and, and the cognition around your emotions and your feelings. Exactly. And that again is, you know, it, it, it's a temporary basis when you're very distressed, that can seem beneficial, but in the long run, it, as you say, it's disabling that you can't actually develop these strategies. You say that the majority of people have, for coping with stress and emotion and so on, and and again, uh, and it's something that, as I say, not always discussed with physicians and so on, but is this fact that that um, you know that people have sort of fluctuating emotions and stresses in their life and so on that they, they have to learn to deal with, um, yeah. and and there isn't a the medical. It's going back to actually that sort of phrase of a pill for every ill, and I think that was one of the things that drove the benefits. Uh,
0: exactly. And,
1: Sort of your yeah. mother's little helper and so on, and that there's a sort of medical solution to what are not medical problems. I, I mentioned earlier as well that this associates with social deprivation and and what are actually you know um, people who have very difficult lives. That just because you have a major problem in your life with you know unemployment or poor housing or whatever, uh, it doesn't mean there's a medical solution. And in fact, as I say, medicine can sometimes, uh, quite often, uh, maybe be counterproductive. Of what yeah. you need. Is more kind of practical help around the things that they you know, make exactly like.
0: you know taking yoga and breathing and learning breathing exercises and meditation and these things take time and they take maintenance and they take work. We Absolutely. would it's and much easier to say I just want the pill to take care of
1: it. Yes, and there's the, their, their skills uh, that and like all yes. skills like training and and practice you're not going to become good at relaxation techniques the first time you try them. And exactly. Again, there's there's a, a, a contrast in the difficulty. Because the pill you say seems quick and easy, whereas the real solution is slow and hard.
0: And that's the case of with most things in life, isn't it? <laughs> so, indeed, it yeah. is.
1: Indeed, it is. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: One of the things we run into also is the polydrugging. I have several people that have reached out to me yeah. and saying, you know, I'm on Effexor and Clonazepam and Xanax and, on you know, Ambien, and all these different things, um, often psychotropic, sometimes SSRIs, SNRIs, yeah. and sometimes with benzos. And they're, they're having trouble getting support from psychiatrists or doctors to say, do I come off? Do I not? I don't know what to come off of first. Um, you know, if I did, and I would really like to be drug free is what most of them say, but they don't know how to go about it. Now I understand sometimes a cocktail of psych meds can be beneficial for certain people. But I also have we've seen some over prescribing. And those people who are poly drugged who really don't know where to turn and say, look, I'm on five different medications, what do I do? A lot of them are having trouble getting support. Yeah. Have you seen that? Or, um, and what would you say to somebody like that?
1: Yes, I, I definitely have seen it, and um, I suppose again, it, it's it's it is a matter of going through, you know, the the history of how okay. they got the drugs. What were the problems? What are the drugs supposed to be doing? Uh, do they know why they were starting certain things? Because that may be unclear. And sometimes one has to go back over, say, uh, a letter from the psychiatry services and so on, try and get an understanding of how, how the situation developed. Um, Having said that, uh, my overall feeling would be in relation to the sort of broad r- range of uh, psychotropic drugs, uh, benzodiazepines are ones that are unlikely to be essential, so to speak, uh, yeah. and therefore the ones that are most likely to be worth trying to see if you can come off without even referencing back to the, the, the mental health or psychiatric services. Mm-hmm. Obviously, things like you know, the more severe psychotropics for people who've got severe mental conditions like schizophrenia I wouldn't right. go you know, drawing them off their, their psychophobics uh, without conferring with, the, with the, the mental health specialists. But for benzodiazepines, I think it's much more the case that that's something that look you and I can tackle this together. We don't have to refer okay. back to the I understand that. And then with the, say, the antidepressants, which would be the next ones I'd look at, mm-hmm. I, my feeling there would be, you know, you need to go through how they get on, how depressed they were, what's their current situation. Mm-hmm. And we do know that, that with antidepressants as well, they take a long time to kick in, so to speak, so they're not a quick, right. uh, they don't have a quick pharmacological action and then coming off them again, you don't want to do that too soon, but mm-hmm. it is something that's desirable in the long run. And I would see again, a similar thing, but not quite as sort of complex, there's a, a sort of tapering. And sometimes you just find that, you know back to this thing we were saying earlier, if things are going well and the life things have improved they feel more mentally resilient then we can look at that stopping your um antidepressants so mm-hmm. as i say in, in that order so benzodiazepines you know quick in so therefore we can kind of tackle those early and they're more symptom treatments rather than uh what seems curative treatments antidepressants are somewhere in the middle i have to say some people end up on antidepressants who right. actually we didn't need them in the first place and want to look at back at that but if they definitely have benefited from them uh, and, and they you know, are now better, then one can come off those step by step, but, but usually with fewer steps. Um, and then the major antipsychotics, if like that would be something I'd have to go back to the psychiatrist about. Although the, the people can come off those too, for sure. I, I have sure. a young man who had, um, had a major sort of psychotic incident, ended up in the hospital was quite ill, came to me on significant doses of, of uh, psychotropics uh, and antipsychotics. And yet he, he was feeling that, you know, he was trying to say, well, I'm better now and got a job, settled down and lived. It's interesting, he moved away from where he was from as well, which I think for some for some of his problems lay. And he was saying, you know, but my psychiatrist won't let me stop them. So I said, oh, okay, yeah. well, I, 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 I'll we won't stop them, but let, let's, let wean them down and see how they right, have gone. Right. And he now, again, is, uh, I think he's still on a small dose of an anti but much less than he was on before. And he's only staying on that because he and I are both nervous that we don't want to end up back in hospital. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, exactly.
0: you know, we're going to start wrapping this up. Um, but I did want to ask you at the end, if you had any last words or advice both for physicians and or for patients, um, or any, you know, the things you would like to close with?
1: Yeah. So uh, it's interesting. I mean, I do talk to physicians quite a lot. I probably have more, because of my educational role, I have a lot more involvement with, with medical students and, and, and physicians in training and physicians mm-hmm. in fact, post-training. And my big message to those is that, that benzodiazepines are they're not harmless. <laughs> There's this right. very perception that particularly, as you said, those lower doses, people are on them in a long period of time, uh, that, you know, what's the harm? And I said, there's quite a lot of harm. And you really, as you've highlighted, you might only see the harm when you try to stop it. Uh, yeah. so you need to recognize, first of all, that they're not harmless. But secondly, that that doesn't mean, I would say, to stop them straight away. There's a process mm-hmm. to go through. It's a process you have to work with the patient. And um, there's no sort of one size fits all. There's, it's very much a tailored approach which you work out between you. Uh, yeah. And with, as I say, saying that, that the agreed goal of the outset should be a, a, a drug-free life, if possible. Okay. So that, that's my message to physicians, if you like. My message to patients, I suppose, is, uh, and it goes back to really one of the things raised at the beginning, if you, if you can't find a position that you're comfortable with, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, I, I wouldn't discourage with changing position, I have to say. Yeah. Um, And uh, if they can't find a position, even if they shop around, then this is something that you can work on yourself with the support of uh, like the, men- the groups you've mentioned kind of support groups and, and so on. Uh, but be careful in a sense, don't don't go to the wrong source. Right. Uh, talk to people, find out uh, who, who is, if like got a, um, an informed approach in this area and, and uh, yeah, see if you can tackle the problem. Uh, there are other, and it goes to the other thing just to say there are other health professionals besides doctors. Again, yeah. not many doctors necessarily say this, Right. But, you know, there's definitely counselors, uh, we, we've got a good network here actually of, of community drug counselors who oh, right. do a bit of work with, many of them don't have a good relationship with doctors, which I always feel is a bit of a shame, but I find uh, from the point of view of the patients that these are people who can be very helpful, and they're not, they're not sort of if you like fully trained health professionals, but they do have a specialist uh, knowledge and experience in, in the area of, of uh, drugs and alcohol. And they can be very helpful because they, they, you know, they, they can take a patient, yeah. what I would call a patient-centered approach, regardless of what the, the substance is. So speak.
0: Right. I, I think I, I totally agree. In fact, counseling got me through and got so many people through. Um, I think actually helping to teach counselors on the the complications of benzodiazepine withdrawal is almost as important as trying to teach the physicians. Uh,
1: absolutely. And and again, as you say, it, it's also uh, teaching at least well, encouraging that the counselors to be uh to to inform themselves so that they actually know what they're doing is safe even if what they're doing isn't uh, fully endorsed or being agreed by their physician right Right.
0: that makes sense oh this has been a wonderful conversation thank you so much colin for being on our show today i really appreciate it and um this will be released here soon on two different um episodes so I, I think it'll be exciting to have it out. And it's been such great information. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today.
1: Not a It's been my pleasure.
0: All right. Thanks. Take care. I want to thank Dr. Bradley for his time and speaking with us today. Oh, thank you so much. Learning about this problem from a different point of view a- across the ocean in a totally different country, especially from a country that identified the issues of benzodiazepines long before we really started to pay attention here in the U.S., this opens our eyes and helps us identify the successes and pitfalls that this journey might take. I am very grateful to Dr. Bradley for his kindness and dedication to this problem, and especially for taking time to speaking with us on the podcast. Before we close today's episode, though, allow me just 25 seconds for our disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice in any way. The host of this podcast is not a medical professional nor is he engaged in rendering medical health or psychological advice nor any other kind of personal or professional services. The views and opinions expressed by our listeners and interview guests on this podcast, whether read from textual submissions or presented in their own voice, do not necessarily reflect those of the Benzofree podcast or of its host. Withdrawal tapering on any other change in dosage of benzodiazepines, non-benzodiazepines, or any other prescription drugs should only be done under the direct supervision of a licensed physician. Our full disclaimer can be viewed on our website at benzofree.org disclaimer. And that closes out this episode. Thanks again to Dr. Bradley, and I hope to be back soon with a new episode. I am i already have an idea, and I'm going to jump on it here pretty soon, I promise. Keep calm, taper slowly, and take care of yourself. I'll see you next time.